In the 1950s, the Green Bay Packers were a terrible football team. They had a losing record for almost the entire decade, and in 1958, they finished the season with 10 losses and just one win. A little bit of a shorter season back then. The very next year, the team hired a new coach that was charged with turning the team around. His name? Vince Lombardi. Coach Lombardi, one day in practice, was so frustrated with his team and all their sloppiness that he blew his whistle, gathered the whole team around, and in this huge huddle, he knelt down and picked up a football and said these now legendary words, gentlemen, this is a football. Whole team starts laughing. Says, gentlemen, I don't think you understand. This is a football. And the team stops laughing. Coach Lombardi's message was loud and clear. If you want to get good at anything, if you want to advance in anything, you must first master the basics. You must first master the fundamentals. Well, Coach Lombardi's methods paid off. Under his leadership, the Packers won five league championships, including two Super Bowls. And now, every year, the Super Bowl champions hoist up a trophy named the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Now imagine, for you engineer majors, on the first day of class, your professor gets up to the front and writes the number five on the whiteboard, points to it, and says, everybody, this is a number. For you bio majors, professor stands up there, points to the friend sitting next to you and says, everybody, this is a human being. For you English majors, your professor holds up a copy of Pride and Prejudice and says, students, this is a book. For you biz econ majors and econ majors, your professor goes up there and says, this is supply and demand. <laughs> and we kind of laugh at that, but the reality stands. If you're going to get good at anything, you must first master the basics. If you don't grasp these basic concepts, then you're not going to get anywhere in your major, and you're not going to get anywhere in your field. It's only once you master the basics that you're able to move on to more complex topics and to explore deeper areas in that field. Well, the same goes for Christianity. If you don't get one key basic truth, and you're not going anywhere in your Christianity, you're not even going to have a relationship with God, you're not in any way going to grow spiritually, you're not in any way going to be able to grasp more complex theological topics unless you first get one basic truth, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be studying the book of Romans this year, and this book is deep. The theology is complex. The details are intricate. 
The implications for your daily living are profound, but you're not going to understand any of that, and you're not going to be able to live out any of that if you don't first understand the gospel. And so tonight, here at the, the beginning of the year, during our, only our second GOC, we're going to answer the question, what is the gospel? You can turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And here we're going to get a front row seat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week during our first meeting, we left off with verse 5, a point we called the assurance of love. In this verse, God encourages and comforts us with the truth that the Holy Spirit is given to each and every true believer. And as the Holy Spirit lives in the heart of every true Christian, one of his ministries is to convict Christians of the truth that they are deeply loved by God. Verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that's where we left off, this simple yet profound truth that God loves us. Well, how do we know for sure? How do we know for sure that God loves us? What has he done to show that he loves us? The Apostle Paul says, glad you asked. And he continues to write in verse 6. He starts off with the word for. Here comes the proof of God's love. For, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God. This is the unmistakable, irrefutable proof that God loves sinners. In this passage, we see the Apostle Paul answered the question, what's so great about the gospel? The word gospel literally means good news. And today we're going to see that the gospel really is good news for everyone here today. It's good news if you're a Christian and it's good news if you're not a Christian. What's so great about the gospel? Paul answers it three different ways. We're going to give three different answers to the question, what is so great about the gospel? First, it satisfies the most desperate need. That's found in the first part of verse 6. Just that first phrase there, for while we were still weak. The gospel satisfies your most desperate need your greatest need is not getting a high GPA. Not getting into that grad school that you've had your eye on. It's not landing your dream job and getting that career that makes everyone ooh and ah. It's not popularity. It's not being well-liked. It's not getting that guy or that girl to like you. It's not money. It's not friends. It's not respect. And it's not the iPhone XS Max. Your greatest need 
my greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins. This is the most desperate need of every human being. Now, the first thing we notice in this passage is that we are called weak. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're unable to understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14. It means we're unable to see the kingdom of God or enter into it, John 3, 3 3-5. We're unable to seek after God, Romans 3.11. The Bible speaks loud and clear. Everyone has sinned, and God will not leave the guilty unpunished, and that's not the worst part of it. The worst part of it is that you can't do anything about that. You are too weak to save yourself, as verse 6 says. When I was a kid, about four or five years old, my family took a vacation to the great nation of Canada, and part of this vacation was visiting this big indoor water park. And at the time, I was very young and I couldn't swim, and so my job was just to stick with my mom the whole time while my dad and my sister went off and swam in the pools and went down water slides and things like that. And I thought it was pretty lame to just stick with my mom the whole time, so I decided to sneak off. And I wanted to go in the water as well. And at the time, what caught my attention, what really caught my eye, was the wave pool. Now, for those of you who don't know what this is, it's just what it sounds like. It's a big pool of water with a machine on one side that moves up and down to generate waves to simulate like you're at the beach. And... As a four or five-year-old kid, I went in there. I knew I couldn't swim, and so I just went in until the water was like at my ankle level. And then I quickly ran away, super excited that I had broken the rules and I'd gone the water. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I can do better than that. And so I went in again, this time until the water was at my knees. And I quickly ran away, super excited that I had gone even deeper into the water. Well, pretty soon I'm playing this game with myself. How far can I go in? And I go in until the water is at my waist level, and then my chest level, and then my neck level. And pretty soon I have to tippy-toe just to keep my head above water. And it's at that time that a wave knocks me off my feet, and I cannot find the bottom of the floor. Uh, I'm being pulled further away from the shore. I remember the roar of the machine getting louder and louder and louder. I'm flailing my arms, kicking my legs, trying my best to keep my head above water, trying my best to pull myself back to the shore. I'm thinking back to how my older sister swam, trying to imitate her. That's not working. I'm trying to breathe in some air, but instead I'm getting gulps of water. And at the end of all this, I say, okay, finally, this is it. It's been a good life. (laughs) And I don't know how how long this went on, uh, but I had given up hope. And after what seemed like an eternity, a lifeguard jumps in, rescues me, and brings me back to my parents. Well, since then, I've learned how to swim. Uh, Not necessarily because I like swimming, but out of necessity, because uh, I'm scared, because I Remember that feeling of literally drowning, of of feeling completely helpless to save myself. And guys, it's the same for us in a spiritual sense. We're too weak to save ourselves. No matter how hard we try, we can't pedal our way back to God. Ephesians 2, which was read earlier, says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It doesn't get more weak 
than being dead. We have a total inability. We have absolutely no ability to take even a baby step toward God. We can't save ourselves. Guys, the gospel is not about self-effort. The gospel is not about being better or doing gooder. Galatians 2.16 makes this clear. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul says it three different ways here for emphasis. Your works won't justify you. No matter how many good works you do, you won't do enough where God says you are innocent. You are right in my eyes because no matter how many good works you do, you still have sin. You are still by definition unrighteous and unable to be declared right. You have to be forgiven of your sins. And so this is not about trying to be more holy. This is not about reading the Bible for more minutes a day. This is not about praying for more minutes a day. This is not about getting your life back on track and going to church every Sunday. It's not about waking up early enough where you're at the turnaround by 7.45 and you feel so holy because you're awake and going to church while everyone else is still asleep. Though as a side note, it'd be nice if you were there at 7.45. It's not about abstaining from certain sins or stopping your sins or sinning less. If someone were to ask you this question, if you were to die today and you stood at the gates of heaven and God asked you, why should I let you in? What would you say? How would you answer that question? If your answer is anything that begins with because I did, and then you name a good work, it's the wrong answer. And the gates of heaven will remain closed to you. If you think you can save yourself, this passage calls you a name. Weak. You can't do it. One pastor writes, What? Get to heaven on your own strength? Why, you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. One word. Impossible. Your most desperate need is salvation. And you can't save yourself. You need to be saved. You need a savior who will make a sacrifice for you. And that leads us to our second point. The second answer to the question, what's so great about the gospel? It requires the most costly sacrifice. Look at the second part of verse 6. Let's read the whole verse to see where Paul is going here. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly if you hang out in Christian circles for any length of time, you're going to hear this one phrase repeated over and over and over again. And rightly so, because it in many ways encapsulates what the Christian life is all about. And that phrase that you're going to hear over and over again is, Christ 
died for you. And I grew up going to church, hearing that, and I had some idea of what that meant, but that little phrase didn't really come alive for me until I realized that that one word for was speaking of substitution. Substitution. Christ died instead of you. Christ died on your behalf. Christ died in your place. Christ died the death that you deserved. He died for us while we were ungodly, as the end of the verse says. To be ungodly means that we are in fierce opposition to God. Ungodly means that you are anti-God. And you might say, well, that's a little strong. I don't feel like I'm in fierce opposition against God and that I'm anti-God. But it's true. We're all born naturally giving God a stiff arm to the face. None of us is born naturally loving God and wanting to obey God. On the contrary, we're all naturally born loving ourselves. And we're willing to disobey God and step outside his bounds that he has set in his word in order to get what we want. We're all born naturally as a default, self-centered and selfish. And here's what's important about this word ungodly. If you studied the book of Romans before, or if you're reading it straight through, you read that word ungodly and that should send a shiver down your spine. Because you remember chapter 1, verse 18, when this word came up before. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not a good thing to be ungodly because being ungodly means that God's wrath is revealed toward you. He will pour out his anger and judgment on you for being anti-God. And that's why when Christ died for us, it says in verse 6, that he died at the right time. He died at the right time. When we were objects of God's wrath, helpless to save ourselves, when we were in desperate need of a rescue, that's when he rescued us. That's when Jesus stepped in and absorbed the wrath of God for us as our substitute. I remember being back in the third grade and learning a lesson about substitution that I would never forget. I remember this because it was my favorite year in elementary school, and hands down, I had my favorite teacher I've ever had. Her name was Mrs. Sandy Sue. And a little background about this class, uh, there was a kid in this class, and it was that guy. That guy nobody liked, everybody hated, and rightly so, because he was the bad kid. He would do so many things to disrupt the teacher and disrupt the other kids. I'm sorry if your name is this, but his name was Robert. Robert. Uh, just the sound of his name uh, gave goosebumps to all of us third graders. His thing was poking. Sat next to him, he would just poke you incessantly until you yelled at him, and then you got in trouble. And so at one point, the teacher 
actually puts all of our desks on one side of the room in groups of four and then puts Robert's desk by himself on an island on the other side. Well, one day, Mrs. Sue is up there teaching and she says, hey, um, I have this brand new set of markers. Has anyone seen them? They're on my desk and they're not there anymore. Has anyone seen them? No one says anything, and she starts to get a little flustered and says, well, okay, well, if you've seen them or if you took them by accident, just let me know. Well, she goes on teaching throughout the day, and then toward the end of the day, shortly before the bell is about to ring, she interrupts herself while she's teaching, and she says, hey, well, what's that? She walks down the center aisle, and sticking out of a backpack are the markers. And all of us third grade kids are like, oh, the markers. Whose backpack is that? Whose backpack? Oh, of course. Of course. Robert. Mrs. Sue goes back to the front of the class and says, well, Robert, because you stole these markers, I'm going to have to ask you to stay behind after the bell rings. And Robert immediately breaks down and says, no, please don't make me stay behind. He starts pleading with her. And she says, no, you... You, you took the markers, and so you're going to have to be punished. You've got to stay after class. And, and now he's in tears, just crying out, please, uh, don't make me stay. I don't want to stay. My dad needs to pick me up. Don't make me stay. And Mrs. Hughes says, okay, fine. You don't have to stay after class on one condition. If somebody else stays behind for you, would anyone like to stay behind class instead of Robert. Silence. I'm sitting there, punk third grader. Like, mm. Mrs. Sue, Mrs. Sue, please. <laughs> this is my heart, this is my heart. There's no way, there's no way that I'm gonna take the fall for something that I didn't do. And there's absolutely no way that I'm going to do it for Robert. And so, as you can imagine, no one volunteers. And at the end of it, just before the bell rings, Mrs. Sue reveals that the whole thing was a setup. That the day before, she had planned out with Robert the whole thing about the markers. He didn't really steal them. So that she could teach us a lesson about substitution. And she launched into the gospel. Uh, I guess you can do that at a Christian school. <laughs> Ever since the third grade at Chinese Christian schools, <laughs> I never forgot that lesson because I never forgot that feeling that I had sitting there in my chair with absolutely no inclination to take the punishment for something that I didn't do and to do it for someone that was mean to me. Well, as crazy as that sounds, this is the message of the gospel. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. As ridiculous as that sounds, Jesus took the punishment for someone else. And it wasn't just any small price that he paid. It wasn't just any small sacrifice that he gave. It was his life. 
As crazy as it is to give up your life for the ungodly, that's what Jesus did. God must punish sin. And the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ shows what a high price was paid, what a great sacrifice was made, because our sin was not swept under the rug, our sin was not thrown out the window, our sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Do you see this costly, costly sacrifice that Jesus paid as your substitute? He was whipped, and he was scourged. His back was ripped open for you. He was mocked, made fun of, spit upon. His beard was torn out for you. He carried that heavy wooden cross up to Mount Calvary, so heavy that he couldn't even do it by himself. Simon of Cyrene had to help him up. He did that for you. And finally, he was nailed through the wrists and through the ankles and hoisted up on that cross for you. He wore that crown of thorns that was not only meant to hurt him physically, but also to scar him emotionally, making fun of him for his claims to be the king of the Jews. He did that for you. He died so that you would live. This is amazing love. And that's what we're going to look at next. The incomprehensible love contained in the gospel. The third answer to the question, what's so great about the gospel? It surpasses the best human love. Verses 7 to 8. Let's read verse 7 for now. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Verse 7 describes the pinnacle, the apex, the very best human love has to offer, and that is dying in the place of another person. But this verse is also realistic in saying that you wouldn't just die for anyone, you would only die for a good person, a righteous person. Now, those two people, the good person and the, the righteous person, are probably talking about the same person. So even if someone was righteous, even if someone was good, upright, kind, generous, only then would you, as verse 7 says, scarcely, perhaps, maybe die for him. So that's the best human love has to offer dying for a good person, and even then, you wouldn't exactly be lining up to do so. In the history of our country, there have been 20 attempted assassinations on presidents. You guys know the president has his Secret Service agents uh, dressed sharp in their suits, sunglasses, earpiece, and their job is to protect the president, and if need be, to throw their body in the line of fire and take a bullet for the president. And this has only happened four times in the history of the United States. A Secret Service agent, Tim McCarthy, 
threw his body in the line of fire to protect President Ronald Reagan in 1981. And in 1950, three different officers took bullets that were aimed at President Harry S. Truman. Now here's the thing. These Secret Service agents risked their lives and took a bullet for a good man, someone that they knew would do a lot of good and profitable things in this world. Would you do the same? Let me ask you this. What, what if the gun was pointed at your best friend? Would you stand in front of the gun for your best friend? Well, I have no doubt that some of you would because you are that kind of person. You're loving and sacrificial to that extreme degree. Let me change the scenario a little bit more. What, what if the gun was pointed at a stranger? Someone you never met before. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, sorry, stranger man. But... Uh, I had to think about it for my best friend, and so I think you're out of luck. One more scenario. What if the gun is pointed at your worst enemy? The person that has hurt you the most in this life. Would you take the bullet then? As crazy and unlikely as that sounds, this is what Jesus did for us. That's why God's love surpasses the best human love has to offer. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were sinners, not when we were his friends, not when we were even just strangers to him, but when we were his enemies, when we had disobeyed him, when we were rebellious against him, pushed him away, when we had sinned against him personally, Christ died for us. Let's hone in on that word, sinner. One commentator helpfully asked this question, what kind of sinner are you? What kind of sinner are you? Are you? Because the question is not, are you a sinner? We're, we're all sinners, but what type of sinner are you? And he goes on to list different types. Are you a continual sinner? Have you committed a specific sin, not once, not twice, but hundreds of times, and you promised yourself that you wouldn't do it again. And maybe you even talked to God about not doing it again, but you got sucked back into it and find yourself in the habit of committing this sin. You are a continual sinner. Are you a privileged sinner? Did you grow up hearing about Jesus? Are your parents Christians? When the privileged sinner sins. Uh, it wounds his conscience more. But he still goes forward with the sin anyways. Are you this privileged sinner? You sin despite what you know is wrong, 
despite what your pastors and parents have told you. Or maybe you are a heinous sinner. Are you a wicked sinner? Have you done something so scandalous? Have you done something where if somehow I could mass text message everyone in this room, once they started checking their phones, you would run out of here and transfer schools? Or are you a secret sinner? Do you live a double life? Do you change the mask based off of who you're hanging out with? Whether you're alone or in public? Are you a habitual sinner, a privileged sinner, a heinous sinner, or a secret sinner? I'll raise my hand first and say that the answer for me is yes. I'm four out of four. But this is what's so great about the gospel. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not just some sinners, not just certain types of sinners, no qualifications here, no exception clauses here. He shows his love for sinners, habitual sinners, privileged sinners, heinous sinners, secret sinners, all of the above. Come one, come all. There's enough room at the foot of the cross for all sinners. You see, no one is beyond the reach of God's love. Let me make that absolutely clear. No one is beyond the reach of God's love because no one deserved it in the first place. No one is beyond God's reach. This passage applies to everyone in the room today. Now, I don't know all of you here today. It's still the beginning of the year, and I still look out and see a lot of unfamiliar faces I don't know your background. I don't know what kind of sinner you are. Are you four out of four, three out of four? Uh, are you this habitual sinner where you fall into the same thing over and over again? Uh, maybe you are that bratty church kid, the rebellious church kid, the privileged sinner. I don't know what kind of heinous things you may have done in your past, the things that you regret. I don't know what kind of things that you have done or currently do in secret i don't know all of that but i can speak with the authority of this passage in god's very word that no matter what kind of sinner you are no matter what kind of sin you're bringing in here today no matter what kind of chains you bring in here today god loves all sinners and he gave his son for all sinners. No one is beyond the reach of God's love. No one. Because no one deserved it in the first place. Do you understand that? See, it's not like there's some of us in the room that kind of earned it. Well, you know, there's some people in the room that didn't do certain bad things, and so they kind of earned it. Or there are certain people in this room who have been accumulating good works for quite a few years now, and so they've purchased part of their ticket to heaven. No, this, this passage calls us all weak, calls us all helpless, calls us all ungodly, calls us all sinners. And if anyone in here stands justified, we stand by grace and grace alone. And I want to make this clear because... I, perhaps there's some of you here who 
who look at the people around you and uh, come to GOC, have conversations with people here, go to Grace Community Church, uh, see a lot of people in suits and see a, a choir that seems to have dropped straight out of heaven. And you think about yourself and you say, well, God's love isn't for me. It's for people like this. And you think, well, God could never love me because of the things that I've done in my past. And, and God's love is only for these other people that I see, these, these prim and proper Christians that have cleaned up their act and got their lives together. And, and if, you, if you leave here today thinking that, I just think that's the saddest thing and would be the greatest burden on my heart because this passage tells you the opposite. That Christians are not those who have in some way cleaned up their act. Christians are those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace and grace alone. And there is no one beyond the reach of God's love and God's grace. You cannot outsin the grace of God. No matter who you are, you cannot outsin the grace of God of God. What's so great about the gospel? I hope after looking at this passage, you know the answer to that question. It satisfies the most desperate need. We can't save ourselves like me that I was drowning and I needed a lifeguard to save me. We're all drowning spiritually and we need someone to rescue us. It requires the most costly sacrifice. Jesus had to go all the way to death to be our substitute. And third, it surpasses the best human love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves us. So go back to that question. If you were to die today and stand before God in heaven and he said, why should I let you in? What would you say? If your answer is anything like, because I tried my best, wrong answer. Because I did these good deeds, wrong answer. Because I was a good person, wrong answer. Because I stopped these sins that I was doing, wrong answer. You're always going to give the wrong answer if you start with I. I, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. I hope you see what the right answer is now. Why should I let you into heaven? Because Jesus died for me. Because Jesus paid it all as my substitute, because Jesus fulfills my most desperate need. It's not about I. It's not about what I have done. It's about Jesus Christ and what he has done. This is the good news of the gospel. You could never save yourself, but someone has come to save you by his grace. But some of you may be, even tonight, rejecting 
the good news. Uh, you hear this and you have not yet given your life to Christ in faith. And you're still weak, still unable to save yourself. You're still ungodly. You're still a sinner. You're still anti-God. You're still pushing God away. And if that's you tonight, I just want you to know that the greatest concern for you is not thinking about whether you should join GOC or another fellowship. Your greatest concern is not should you join a small group here at GOC. You shouldn't be worried about growing spiritually or going on a spiritual journey. You shouldn't be concerned about everyday things either. You shouldn't be concerned about your next class, your next homework assignment, how you're going to do on your next midterm or your first midterm. You shouldn't be concerned about your career. You shouldn't be concerned about 50 years from now. You shouldn't be worried about what you're going to do and what you're going to eat after GOC tonight. Your greatest concern, what you should be mostly concerned about is your own soul. Where you stand before God tonight. And this passage reveals the good news that Jesus will save your soul tonight if you give your life to him in faith. Romans 10, 13 for whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved.